Welcome to Manufacturing Success, a podcast presented by the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. My name is Mike Carruth. I'm a partner in the Columbia, South Carolina office of Fisher and Phillips. I'm a member of the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. Let's get started with this episode of Manufacturing Success. No matter where my work has taken me recently, I always hear manufacturers talking about the challenges of finding employees. With unemployment at about three and a half percent, it would not seem that reductions in forces are a critical or important thing. However, there are many events and situations that can occur that require an employer to implement a reduction in force. Like any event that involves potential legal exposure, a reduction in force is a situation in which a manufacturing employer can greatly reduce or eliminate risk by properly handling the process. Today's conversation is part one of a three-part discussion we are having on how employers should legally prepare for a reduction in force. Today, we'll be talking about what manufacturing employers should consider in planning a reduction in force. Our guest today for part one of this conversation is Haygood Ty, who is also a partner in the Fisher and Phillips office in Columbia, South Carolina. Haygood is co-chair of the Fisher and Phillips Wage and Hour Practice Group. He is also president of the South Carolina Bar. On top of that, Haygood is one of our firm's go-to guys in helping employers deal with a wide range of issues related to reductions in force. And I do want to add that recently Haygood successfully handled one of the largest Warren lawsuits in U.S. history. Uh, having the benefit of working in the same office with Haygood, I can tell you that his areas of expertise also extend to grilling red meat and wine, but we won't get into that today. With that, let me welcome Haygood to the Manufacturing Success Podcast. Well, Mike, thanks so much for having me here. I, I, I do like a little red meat and a little red wine, but I realize we've got to talk about more important legal issues today. So thank you very much. Yeah, we'll have that podcast a little later, Haygood. That one will right. be, be top notch. Well, to start us off, can you just tell us what are the key items a manufacturing employer should consider in starting the planning of a reduction in force? Well, you know, manufacturers have really got to sit down and think about what is their goal here, both short term and long term. Uh, many times the easy answer is they need to cut cost, but do they need to cut cost, you know, for a long period of time, or is this a short-term issue? Because that could impact the options that they may want to look at going forward. Uh, they've also got to think about what the long-term holds for them in terms of manufacturing, because they, of course, don't want to lose skill sets that they're going to need down the road as they continue their operations. I mean, I'm hoping in most cases that we're talking about layoffs as opposed to a complete plant closing, but it could be either one. When employers are thinking about the need to reduce labor costs, what are the company's options that they have in that area? Well, there are a number of different ones that relate to, as we were talking about a minute ago, what their business reasons and goals are. So, of course, you could have a permanent layoff, and, and that's what we see in most circumstances. And that's typically an involuntary layoff, but sometimes employers will have a voluntary reduction in force. 
you know, from an employee relations standpoint, that's typically much better. From a, from a retention standpoint, that's better because you don't have the employees that still work for you worried that they're going to be chosen next because employees in a voluntary reduction in force are self-selecting. They're choosing themselves. Um, but there are other options, too, that sometimes I think employers skip by. Uh, back during COVID, for example, we saw some manufacturers that would have short-term furloughs. And by that, I mean, they might shut down for a week at a time. So everybody goes home. The benefit of that is if nobody's doing any work, nobody has to be paid for that week. There are a couple of tricks related to that that are probably a little beyond what we need to get into today, but you have to be sure that people aren't working because you know your salaried exempt workforce, if they do a little bit of work during that furlough, then all of a sudden the whole week becomes compensable and you haven't really achieved the goal you were thinking about. And of course, the other option is you can always reduce compensation and lower people's wages in a cost-saving me method. The only thing about that you got to think about is in this economy, when it's so hard to hold on to employees, if these are employees you need, you know, a reduction in pay may not be the best option. So most companies are looking at either an involuntary reduction in force or a voluntary reduction in force. What should an employer do to start that process? Well, this is a, when you're headed into a situation like this, you need to do a good bit of planning. And we generally recommend that, that manufacturers put together what I call a program document. And this is a document that really spells out how the organization plans to affect this layoff. So how are, it would include things like, how are we going to select the employees to be laid off? So it would spell out the selection criteria. You may or may not decide you want to have an appeal process. So let's say somebody is selected using the criteria, but feels like they shouldn't have been selected and that it wasn't fair. Well, if you've got an appeal process built into that, then that gives them an opportunity to raise that issue with your organization before they go talk to a plaintiff's lawyer or the EEOC or someone like that to bring a complaint. The program document also would have things in it like what sort of severance, if any, is going to be offered to employees. And I think it's a good idea to make clear right up at the beginning, just like we do in handbooks and other communications, that we're not gonna discriminate on any basis in terms of how we select and conduct the reduction in force. I think after being able to justify a reduction in force, uh, I think probably one of the more critical things is how are people selected? So what, what are your thoughts and recommendations for how people should be selected for a reduction in force? Well, that is one of the issues that people struggle with. And, and quite frankly, I'll often get call from, calls from employers who say, we need to conduct this reduction in force. And when I say, well, let's talk about the selection process, they'll say, well, I think the supervisors have already started that. Well, I would suggest to you that that's not always the best thing. I think you're better off as an organization to decide what is the selection process going to be. And as I said, put that in your program document and then train your supervisors and managers on it. Now, in terms of what is the best selection process, you know, that's that's hard to say. But for your hourly employees, for your non-exempt employees, 
I think a typical good conservative process would be to first lay off any temporary employees you've got. Then if you still need more layoffs to move on to people who are on a final written warning for attendance or performance. And then if further selections are needed, then you might make selections based on seniority with those most junior employees being selected first. Um, now, when you look at your white collar workforce, you know, engineers, people in the office, things like that, many times a seniority driven process doesn't always work. You might still use your final written warning uh, criteria as the first step. But a lot of times you got to look at skill sets and job performance and things like that rather than tenure to decide who should be selected. Um, of course, ideally, you want the criteria you use for anybody to be as objective as possible. When you read about lawsuits being filed because of, of layoffs, many times the focus is on subjective criteria. You know, a supervisor or a manager made the choice because somebody wasn't a good team player or something like that. But when you go to look at the performance evaluations and the documentation, there's not a lot there to, to think about. Now, um, of course, as we move into, you know, I mentioned voluntary reductions in force a minute ago. And when you're doing voluntary, you don't have the same sort of selection criteria, but you need to look at your, um, uh, your facility and decide where is it you can afford to have people volunteer. You know, again, I said earlier, a voluntary reduction in force is good from an employee relations standpoint, but you got to keep in mind, the people that are most likely to volunteer are the ones who can most easily find another job which may be your best employees. So for example, in your maintenance department, you may decide you can afford to lose five employees, but you don't wanna lose the entire department. So if you're gonna have a voluntary reduction in force, you might say in maintenance, we're only gonna take five volunteers. And if we get more than that, the decision will be based, based on seniority. There may be some departments where you're not gonna allow any volunteers, uh, but it is important to evaluate it uh, ahead of time and establish those caps. And of course, you know, conducting a voluntary reduction in force takes a little more time because you got to roll it out. You got to give employees a chance to decide and then you got to move forward with it. So those are all things to think about there from a selection standpoint. Yeah, very good. How far in advance should manufacturers start planning for a reduction in force? Well, ideally, as an employment lawyer who deals with the who deals with these situations, I would like to see employers begin at least 75 days in advance. Now, 75 days in advance sounds like a long time to many of you, but why do I say that? Well, when you get into the next uh, episode of this podcast, uh, my colleague Dave Kresser is going to talk about the WARN Act. And under the WARN Act, if it's triggered, you got to give at least 60 days advance written notice. Well, you can't do that if you haven't already gotten your ducks in line before that period. So I typically say at least 75 days in advance. <clears throat> and there, because there are often many things you've got to think through 
you know, we talked about establishing selection criteria. We talked about training managers on how to use it. You're going to need to think about communications with government officials related to your warn notices. Many times, particularly if you find you uh, have to lay off employees in advance of or before the whole warn notice period has gone by, you may need to continue benefits while they're out. And you have to coordinate those sorts of things with your benefit providers. And they don't typically respond with answers and confirmations of what you can and can't do uh, in one day. So you really do need some advanced planning. And to help employers think about this, Fisher and Phillips has put together a reduction in force toolkit. Um, and this toolkit has a lot of great information in it to help you think about how do you plan? How do you put together your program document? And as part of that, it's got sample warn notices, it's got sample severance agreements, and other information in there that will help you. Now, I will say this, our RIF toolkit is a huge help. It'll help you move forward and plan much more quickly. But you do need to work with your labor and employment lawyer because as you read through that toolkit, you will see that there are a lot of options and issues that you need to consider, um, and many of those have legal impacts. Well, very good, Hagen. That's a lot of good information and some sound advice. Uh, very good tips for the planning process. Hagen, I want to thank you for being part of Manufacturing Success. Uh, I always enjoy uh, working with you, and this conversation was excellent. So thank you again. I want to thank everybody for listening and hope you'll tune in to the next episode of Manufacturing Success. Well, Mike, thanks for having me. Have a great day. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation.